Maybe you'd take a, a moment just to turn to that Bible passage that, that we read, um, John chapter 2. If you're relying on the Bible in the pew there, it's page 1065. Father God, we've just sung uh, inviting you to speak to us, uh, and we pray that you do that by your Spirit. Help each one of us uh, to have ears open and hearts attentive to, to hear your voice as you speak to us. Amen. People go to all sorts of places to meet with God. Uh, They don't always realize uh, that that's what they're they're trying to do. Uh, Whenever we travel long distances and pay big money to go and watch a sports team, we don't often think that we're doing anything very profound. Uh, But it's quite possible that we're on on some sort of a search, uh, a search for excitement, uh, for meaning, for purpose in our lives. Some people aren't into sports. It might be music uh, that they're into. Uh, We go to the stadium rock concerts with the big sing-along choruses, uh, and we search as we hold our phones in the air during the last song for that moment uh, of transcendence, uh, that moment that lifts us out of the ordinary of our lives. Maybe it's shopping. Uh, That's the place where you look for a a bit of a lift. Uh, The dome at Victoria Square, I think, confirms what some people have been saying for some time, that shopping centers are the new cathedrals in our culture. Uh, They are the places where we go to, to worship. Consumption becomes our highest calling. And ours is a time when it's a a television company that's inviting us to believe in better. So people are going to all sorts of places to meet with God. Some people even come to church. Our passage this morning tells of an occasion when Jesus and his contemporaries went to church, when they went to meet with uh, God, the Father of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting just to notice that Jesus did this regularly. He, he went to church. John's already told us about Jesus that he's the Lamb of God who's come to take the sins of the world, that he's the, the Lord, the Master, the Messiah, the one that we must follow. But here we see something very ordinary and everyday about Jesus. He joined with people uh, and went to church. He loves to be with his father. He went to church to meet with God. So whenever he was on that, in that swelling throng on the motorway from Galilee down to Jerusalem, making that 80-mile journey, he was doing what all devout Jews of his day did. They made these regular pilgrimages uh, to the city and to the temple. And John tells us in the passage we've just read that the occasion of this particular visit was the time of the Passover. What's the Passover? What's that all about? Well, the Passover for any Jew coming to Jerusalem that that time was to come and celebrate together the high point of the Jewish year. This was the moment when they remembered how God had rescued their forefathers from slavery in Egypt. And and you probably know the story, uh, whether you've learned it in a context like this or whether you've watched The Prince of Egypt or 
a few centuries, it seems like, before the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. The story of God rescuing his people from Egypt, that's a a Bible story. After centuries under oppression, many of those years under hard labor, God had heard the cries of his people. He had rescued them and freed them. So Passover is all about celebrating God's rescue and enjoying your freedom. That's what a pilgrim going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover is hoping to do. That Passover backdrop, I think, only serves to intensify the incredible disappointment that Jesus and I'm sure many others like him felt when they actually got to Jerusalem and to the temple. John records the event for us in in this morning's passage. The people come looking to celebrate God's rescue, to celebrate their freedom, and what, what they find is a culture of oppression. Oppression and exploitation. Verse 14, In the temple courts, Jesus found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. God's house had been commercialized. Animals were being sold for sacrifices. Money was being exchanged. And undoubtedly, although it doesn't say it here, the pilgrims from all over the land were paying top dollar for a hotel room in Jerusalem that bank holiday weekend. The religious leaders, the citizens of Jerusalem, had turned God into a business opportunity. When you read a bit of the background, it turns out it's quite likely that a lot of the the trading in the temple court here was done by uh, the high priest's own family or by those whom he'd sold a franchise to. The money changing had become a huge part of the racket. Just to explain that, every Jew, when they came to visit the temple, had to pay an annual temple tax But somewhere along the line, it had been decided that the temple tax would have to be paid in a currency all of its own. We don't want dirty money here. We certainly don't want any sort of foreign money. So whatever money you have in your pocket, it has to be exchanged into the currency appropriate for paying the temple tax. Much to the shame of the leadership in Israel, that exchange rate in in the temple wasn't always very favorable. So the Passover, a time when God's people come to celebrate freedom, has become a time of exploitation. A huge irony here is God's people who had been rescued from Egypt now find that they're oppressed by their own religious leaders and by the citizens of Jerusalem, their capital city. Jesus is outraged. He's furious. He's fit to be tied. He's fuming. And by the way, if you've concocted for yourself a God who wouldn't say boo to a goose, who's some kind of meek and mild old guy with a beard, then come and meet the living God revealed in Jesus Christ. His blood boils the people whom he loves, the people whom he wants to see flourishing and set free are being shackled and held captive by their own leaders. 
John tells us that Jesus made a whip out of cords. He drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Jesus is passionate about the temple of God. And when he sees it corrupted like this, he reacts violently and he intervenes. With a little imagination, you can picture the scene that follows. The security guard in the outer court reaches for his walkie-talkie. He sends a message through the headquarters of the temple complex. Roger, Roger, there's been an incident in the court of the Gentiles. Some guys come in. He's chased the animals. He's kicked over the merchandising stalls. There's absolute chaos. And the tills have stopped rolling. Somebody better get down here. Quick. And very, very quickly, the Jewish religious leaders arrive on the scene and they confront Jesus. What's going on here? How dare you? What right do you have? What's your authority? Show us your credentials. What warrant do you have for these measures you've taken? And they ask for a sign. It's probably not what we would do. Uh, It's probably hard to understand why they would do it. Throughout God's word, it seems that it was common that if anyone claimed to speak on God's behalf, people would ask them for a sign. Show us some miraculous power to demonstrate that God is with you and working through you. So, for example, if you remember when uh, Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh uh, and asked him to set the people free, uh, Pharaoh expected to see a sign. Aaron cast down his staff, and right there and then it turns into a snake. I I think there's a little of that kind of thing going on here. We already know from our reading of John's Gospel, that 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 doesn't cause Jesus any trouble at all. Just last week, Mark helped you think uh, about the first of Jesus' miraculous signs, that time in Cana in Galilee, where he turned six huge pitchers of water into wine. Signs and miracles are no problem for Jesus. But he won't be coerced. He won't be manipulated. So on this occasion, there's no sign. Instead, he he just says something really mysterious, really weird. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. With this short cryptic message, Jesus says two incredibly profound things about who he is. First of all, in a way that probably nobody could have understood that day, he predicted his death and resurrection. Verse 21, John steers us to that interpretation. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his own body. And he goes on in verse 22, after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
That day in the temple, the religious leaders probably thought he was nuts. He was talking about single-handedly rebuilding a temple in three days that had taken a huge workforce 46 years to put up. That would be a crazy claim. But Jesus claims crazier than that. He says, kill me and I'll live again. The second thing that Jesus says here is really an implication of the first. Jesus says, I am the true temple. Forget about these bricks and the mortar around us. Forget about the temple sacrifices and the temple tax. I'm the place where people come to meet God. Wow. And now we begin to see why three years later this guy's going to be nailed to a cross. It's because he makes these kind of claims for himself. How could Jesus say that? In what sense could he be the temple? Well, well, what is the temple? The temple, as we said at the start, is the place where people come to meet with God. In Jesus' day, before people could come and be in the temple, they went through an elaborate series of animal sacrifices made on their behalf by the priests. And these sacrifices were to remind the people every time they came of the seriousness of their sin and the lengths that God would go to to forgive them. But here at the Passover season, it takes on a a particular form. Lambs were sacrificed. They were sacrificed to remind people of the, the lambs sacrificed centuries before at that time of the Exodus when they left Egypt. I don't know how well you remember that part of the story. On the night before the hundreds of thousands of Israelites left the land of Egypt, Moses, their leader, had commanded them to kill a lamb in each household, to spread its blood across the the top of the doorframe and down the lintels, down the side. And later that night we read, God sent his judgment on the land of Egypt for its repeated refusal to submit to him and to set his people free. But what we're told is that as God's judgment moved through the land, any door with the blood on it, the angel of judgment passed over that door and the people inside were safe. God had provided this lamb's blood to save his people from his judgment. The lamb's blood was a matter of life and death. What did we learn about Jesus in John chapter 1? It's in verse 29. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the new greater Passover lamb. That first lamb, that first lamb and all the lambs that followed in the centuries after it, they're all in anticipation of him. 
He came not just to set free people from, from political captivity in Egypt, but to set them free from slavery to sin and to death and everything that holds them captive. He came not only for Israel, one nation. He's the Lamb of God for the world. After Jesus, the Lamb of God had given his life on the cross. No more sacrifices are needed. One sacrifice for once and for all. The temple's work is done. Jesus the new greater Passover lamb is the place where we meet God. I wonder whether you've really ever understood that. Perhaps you've thought meeting God was somehow about coming to church. You thought that simply showing up in a place like this, singing the songs praying the prayers, hearing talks like this one, that that was the essence of meeting God. You've thought that meeting in a church was the same as meeting with the living God. Dear friends, if if that is your understanding, then let me gently but firmly burst your bubble. If you haven't already done so, you will be very disappointed in church. Jesus came to church and he was furious with what he found there. The reason I know you'll be disappointed with church is because sinful people like you make up the church and sinful people like me lead in it. So it can't be any other way than a massive disappointment to us if we go there looking for the answers. Maybe we don't rip each other off for animal sacrifices or exchange money the way that they did in Jerusalem in those days. But our churches are still full of car boot sales and new roof raffles, celebrity preachers and commercialized worship. The gatherings of God's people probably aren't as different from Jerusalem, the temple, as we'd like to think. Today, just as then, the church easily descends into being another market, people buying and selling their wares. Folks, what what I mean to say here today is that coming to church doesn't guarantee that we get to meet with God. We've seen today that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, is the true temple. He's the place where we meet with God. The church has an incredible role to play. Let me say this in defense of church, where we gather and I lead. It has an incredible role to play, if it's willing. The Bible teaches us that God wants his church to be the body of Jesus Christ in the world that the church is to be the temple of his Holy Spirit. This is the place where the presence of Jesus is to be known and experienced. Church ought to be the greatest place on earth, but only if it's all about Jesus. 
Let me put it to you as plainly as I can. Maybe the time has come to stop thinking of ourselves as coming to church, expecting to meet with God. Let's come to church expecting to meet with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, my sin and yours. He's the only one who can bring us to the Father. None of this stuff, unless it's inhabited by the, the, the powerful presence of Jesus, means anything. Jesus is the place where we meet God. Have you come to Jesus? Have you allowed him to introduce you to his Father? If not, isn't it high time you did? Let's pray. Jesus, it's a sobering thought for us that when you visited church, it made you angry. So many things had gotten in the way of people meeting with your Father. Lord, we pray that our church would be a place where we do come longing to meet with you. If there are tables that need kicked over and things that need cleared out, show us what they are and give us the courage to do it. And Lord, awaken in each one of us a hunger to really meet with you. To to meet with Jesus, your Son, the one who's the only way to know you and to receive your love. Lord, we come today to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the way to you. We pray all this in his name. Amen.